Part three, chapter six of Bonaventure, a prose pastoral of Acadian Louisiana. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Bonaventure, a prose pastoral of Acadian Louisiana by George W. Cable. Part three, chapter six, converging lines. On the prairies of Vermilion and Lafayette, winter is virtually over by the first week in February. From sky to sky, each tree and field, each plain and plantation grove, are putting on the greenery of a northern May. Even on Côte-Gelée the housewife has persuaded Le Vieux to lay aside his gun, and the early potatoes are already planted. If the moon be at the full, much ground is ready for the sower, and those ploughmen and pony teams and men working along behind them with big clumsy hoes over in yonder field are planting corn. Those silent, tremulous strands of black that in the morning sky come gliding high overhead from the direction of the great sea marshes and fade into the northern blue are flocks that have escaped the murderous gun of the pot-hunter. Spring and summer are driving these before them as the younger and older sister, almost abreast, come laughing and striving to outrun each other across the Mexican Gulf. Those two travelers on horseback, so dwarfed by distance, whom you see approaching out of the northwest, you shall presently find have made, in their dress, no provision against cold. At Carancro, some miles away to the northeast, there is a thermometer, and somewhere in Vermilionville, a like distance to the southeast, there might possibly be found a barometer, but there is no need of either to tell that the air to-day is threescore and ten, and will be more before it is less. Before the riders draw near, you have noticed that only one is a man and the other a woman and now you may see that he is sleek and alert, blond and bland, and the savage within us wants to knock off his silk hat, all the more so for that she is singularly pretty to be met in his sole care. The years count on her brows, it is true, but the way in which they tell of matronhood, and somehow of widowhood too, is a very fair and gentle way, her dress is plain, but its lines have a grace that is also dignity, and the lines of her face—lines is too hard a word for them—are not those of time, but of will and of care, that have chastened and refined one another. She speaks only now and then. Her companion's speech fills the wide intervals. "'Yesterday morning,' he says, as I came along here a little after sunrise, there was a thin fog lying only two or three feet deep, close to the level ground as far as you could see, hiding the whole prairie and making it look for all the world like a beautiful lake, with every here and there a green grove standing out of it like a real little island. She replies that she used to see it so in her younger days, the Acadian accent is in her words. She lifts her black eyes, looks toward Carancro, and is silent. "'You're thinking of the changes,' says her escort. "'Yes, tis so. Dey got twenty time many feel like had before. 
People don't raise cattle no more. Raise crop. Dey say even dat land changing. How changing? I don't know. I don't know if tis so. Dey say prairie rising more every year. I don't know if tis so. I tink dat land don't change much. But to people, yes. Still the changes are mostly good changes, responds the male rider. "'Tisn't the prairie, but the people that are rising. "'They've got the schoolhouse and the English language "'and a free, paid labor system "'and the railroads and painted wagons "'and Cincinnati furniture "'and sewing machines and melodeons "'and Horsford's acid phosphate. "'And they've caught the spirit of progress. "'Yes, tis so. "'Don't see nobody seems satisfied "'since de army, since de railroad.' "'Well, that's right enough. They oughtn't to be satisfied. "'You're not satisfied, are you? "'And yet you've never done so well before as you have this season. "'I wish I could say the same for the album of universal information, but I can't. "'I tell you that, Madame Beausoleil. I wouldn't tell anybody else.' "'Zosephine responds with a dignified bow.' She has years ago noticed in herself that, though she has strength of will, she lacks clearness and promptness of decision. She is at a loss now to know what to do with Mr. Tarbox. Here he is for the seventh time, but there is always a plausible explanation of his presence, and a person of more tactful propriety, it seems to her, never put his name upon her tavern register or himself into her company. She sees nothing shallow or specious in his dazzling attainments. They rekindle the old ambitions in her that Bonaventure lighted, and although Mr. Tarbox's modest loveliness is not visible, yet a certain fundamental rectitude, discernible behind all his nebulous gaudiness, confirms her liking. Then, too, he has earned her gratitude, she has inherited not only her father's small fortune, but his thrift as well. She can see the sagacity of Mr. Tarbox's advice in pecuniary matters, and once and once again, when he has told her quietly of some little operation into which he and the ex-governor, who thinks the world of me, he says, were going to dip, and she has accepted his invitation to venture in also, to the extent of a single thousand dollars, the money has come back handsomely increased. Even now the sale of all her prairie lands to her former kinsman-in-law, which brought her out here yesterday, and lets her return this morning, is made upon his suggestion, and is so advantageous that somehow, she doesn't know why, she almost fears it isn't fair to the other side. The fact is, the country is passing from the pastoral to the agricultural life. The prairies are being turned into countless farms, and the people are getting wealth. So explains Mr. Tarbox, whose happening to come along this morning bound in her direction is pure accident. Pure accident. No, the A of UI hasn't done its best, he says again. For one thing, I've had other fish to fry. You know that. He ventures a glance at her eyes, but they ignore it, and he adds, I mean other financial matters. 
"'Tis so,' says Zosephine, "'and Mr. Tarbox hopes the reason for this faint repulse "'is only the nearness of this farmhouse "'peeping at them through its pink veil of blossoming peach-trees "'as they leisurely trot by. "'Yes,' he says, "'and besides, universal information isn't what people want. "'The book's too Catholic for them.' "'Too Catholic?' Josephine raises her pretty eyebrows in grave astonishment. Cadian is all Catholic. Yes, yes, ecclesiastically speaking, I know. That wasn't my meaning. Your smaller meaning puts my larger one out of sight. Yes, just as this Cherokee hedge puts out of sight the miles of prairie fields, and even that house we just passed. No, the A of UI, I love to call it that, can you guess why? There is a venturesome twinkle in his smile and even a playful permission in her own as she shakes her head. Well, I'll tell you. It's because it brings you and I so near together. Ha! exclaims Madame Beausoleil warningly, yet with sunshine and cloud on her brow at once. She likes her companion's wit, always so deep and yet always so delicately pointed. His hearty laugh just now disturbs her somewhat, but they are out on the wide plain again without a spot in all the sweep of her glance where an eye or ear may ambush them or their walking horses. No, insists her fellow traveller, I say again as I said before, the A of UI, he pauses at the initials, and Zosephine's faint smile gives him ecstasy, hasn't done its best. "'and yet it is done beautifully. "'Why, when did you ever see such a list as this?' "'He dexterously draws from an extensive inner breast-pocket, "'such as no coat but a book-agent's "'or a shoplifter's would be guilty of, "'a wide, limp, Morocco-bound subscription-book. "'Here,' he throws it open upon the broad Texas pommel. "'Now, just for curiosity, look at it. "'Oh, you can't see it from away off there, looking at it sideways.' "'He gives her a half-reproachful, half-beseeching smile and glance, "'and gathers up his dropped bridle. "'They come closer. "'Their two near shoulders approach each other. "'The two elbows touch, and two dissimilar hands hold down the leaves. "'The two horses playfully bite at each other. "'It is their way of winking one eye.' "'Now first here's the governor's name, and then his sons, and his nephews, and his other sons, and his cousins. "'And here's Pierre Cormot, and Baptiste Clément, you know, at Carancro, and here's Basilide Sexnilder, and Joseph Cantrell, and Jacques Hébert, see, and Godin, and Le Prade, Bluin, and Roussel, old Christophe Roussel of Beaubassin, Douane, Roman, and Simonette Leblanc, and Judge Landry, and Terriot, Colonel Terriot, Martin, Hébert again, Robichaud, Mouton, Mouton again, Robichaud again, Mouton, oh, I've got em all, Castile, Beausoleil, cousin of yours? Yes, he said so. Good fellow, thinks you're the greatest woman alive. The two dissimilar hands in turning a leaf touch and the smaller one leaves the book. 
and here's Guilbeault, and Latiolet, and Thibodeau, and Soudry, and Arsenault, flowers of the community. I gather em in. And here's a page of Cochelet people, and Joe Jefferson hasn't got back to the island yet, but I've got his son, see? And here's, can you make out this signature? It's written so small. Both heads, with only the heavens and the dear old earth mother to see them, both heads bend over the book. The hand that had retreated returns, but bethinks itself and withdraws again. The eyes of Mr. Tarbox look across their corners at the sedate brow so much nearer his than ever it has been before, until that brow feels the look and slowly draws away. Look to your mother, Marguerite, look to her. But Marguerite is not there, not even in Vermilionville, nor yet in Lafayette Parish, nor anywhere throughout the wide prairies of Opelousa or Atakapa triumph fills Mr. Tarbox's breast. "'Well,' he says, restoring the book to its hiding-place, "'seems like I ought to be satisfied with that, doesn't it to you?' "'It does. Zosephine says so. She sees the double meaning, and Mr. Tarbox sees that she sees it, but must still move cautiously. So he says, "'Well, I'm not satisfied. It's perfect as far as it goes.' but don't expect me to be satisfied with it. If I've seemed satisfied, shall I tell you why it was, my dear friend? Zosephine makes no reply, but her dark eyes, meeting his for a moment and then falling to her horse's feet, seem to beg for mercy. It's because, says Mr. Tarbox, while her heart stands still, it's because I've made, there is an awful pause, more money without the A of U.I. this season than I've made with it. Madame Beausoleil catches her breath, shows relief in every feature, lifts her eyes with sudden brightness, and exclaims, Das good, das mighty good, yes, tis so. Yes, it is, and I tell you, and you only, because I'm proud to believe you're my sincere friend, am I right? Zosephine busies herself with her riding skirt, shifts her seat a little, and with studied carelessness assents. Yes, her companion repeats, and so I tell you. The true businessman is candid to all, communicative to none, and yet I open my heart to you. I can't help it. It won't stay shut. And you must see, I'm sure you must, that there's something more in there besides money. Don't you? His tone grows tender. Madame Beausoleil steals a glance toward him, a grave, timid glance. She knows there is safety in the present moment. Three horsemen, strangers, far across the field in their front, are coming toward them, and she feels an almost proprietary complacence in a suitor whom she can safely trust to be saying just the right nothings when those shall meet them and ride by. She does not speak, but he says, You know there is, dear Jos, friend. He smiles with modest sweetness. G. W. Tarbox doesn't run after money, and consequently he never runs past much without picking it up. 
they both laugh in decorous moderation the horsemen are drawing near they are acadians i admit i love to make money but that's not my chief pleasure my chief pleasure is the study of human nature the proper study of mankind is man sole judge of truth in endless error hurled the glory jest and riddle of the world this season i've been studying these acadian people and i like them they don't like to be reminded that they're acadians well that's natural the creoles used to lord it over them so when the creoles were slaveholding planters and they were small farmers that's about past now the acadians are descended from peasants that's true while some creoles are from the french nobility but ho wouldn't any fair-minded person the horsemen are within earshot they are staring at the silk hat adieu adieu they pass wouldn't any fair-minded person that knows what france was two or three hundred years ago show you some day in the album about as lief be descended from a good deal of that peasantry as from a good deal of that nobility i should smile why my dear friend the day is coming when the acadians will be counted as good french blood as there is in louisiana they're the only white people that ever trod this continent island or mainland who never on their own account oppressed anybody some little depredation on their british neighbors out of dogged faithfulness to their king and church that's the worst charge you can make look at their history all poetry and pathos look at their character brave peaceable loyal industrious home-loving but zosephine was looking at the speaker her face is kindled with the inspiration of his praise his own eyes grow ardent look at their women ah josephine i'm looking at one don't turn away one made up of loveliness alone a woman of her gentle sex the seeming paragon the reason firm the temperate will endurance foresight strength and skill a perfect woman nobly planned to warn to comfort and command you can't stop me josephine it's got to come and come right now i'm a homeless man josephine tired of wandering with a heart bigger and weaker than ever i thought i had i want you i love you i've never loved anybody before in my life except myself and i don't find myself as lovely as i used oh take me josephine i don't ask you to love as if you'd never loved another i'll take what's left and be perfectly satisfied i know you're ambitious and i love you for that but i do think i can give you a larger life with you for a wife i believe i could be a man you needn't be ashamed of i'm already at the head of my line best record in the united states josephine whether by the day week month year or locality but if you don't like the line i'll throw up the a of u i and go into anything you say for i want to lift you higher josephine you're above me already by nature and by rights but i can lift you i know i can you've got no business keeping a tavern 
"'You're one of nature's aristocrats. "'Yes, you are, and you're too young and lovely to stay a widow "'in a state where there's more men than there's women. "'There's a good deal of the hill yet to climb before you start down. "'Oh, let's climb it together, Josephine. "'I'll make you happier than you are, Josephine. "'I haven't got a bad habit left. "'Such as I had, I've quit. "'It don't pay.' I don't drink, chew, smoke, tell lies, swear, quarrel, play cards, make debts, nor belong to a club. Be my wife. Your daughter'll soon be leaving you. You can't be happy alone. Take me, take me. He urges his horse close, her face is averted, and lays his hand softly but firmly on her too, resting folded on the saddle-horn. They struggle faintly and are still, but she slowly shakes her hanging head. Oh, Josephine, you don't mean no, do you? Look this way. You don't mean no. He presses his hand passionately down upon hers. Her eyes do not turn to his, but they are lifted tearfully to the vast unanswering sky, and as she mournfully shakes her head again, she cries, I don't know. I don't know. I can't tell. I got to see Marguerite. Well, you'll see her in an hour, and if she... No, no, tis not so. Marguerite is in New Orleans since Christmas. Very late in the evening of that day, Mr. Tarbox entered the principal inn of St. Martinville on the Teche. He wore an air of blitheness, which, though silent, was overdone. As he pushed his silk hat back on his head, and registered his name with a more than usual largeness of hand, he remarked, "'Man wants but little here below, nor wants that little long. Give me a short piece of candle and a stumpy candlestick, and take me up and bear me hence into some other chamber.' "'Glad to see you back, Mr. Tarbox,' responded the host, and as his guest received the candle and heard the number of his room, "'Books must a went well this fine day.' Mr. Tarbox fixed him with his eye, drew a soft step closer, said in a low tone, "'My only books were woman's looks, and folly's all they've taught me.' The landlord raised his eyebrows, rounded his mouth, and darted out his tongue. The guest shifted the candle to his left hand, laid his right softly upon the host's arm, and murmured, "'List, are we alone? If I tell thee something, wilt thou tell it never?' The landlord smiled eagerly, shook his head, and bent toward his speaker. "'Friend Perkins,' said Mr. Tarbox, in muffled voice, "'so live that when thy summons comes to join "'the innumerable caravan which moves to that mysterious realm "'where each shall take his chamber in the silent halls of death, "'thou go not, like the quarry slave at night, "'scourged to his dungeon, but sustained and soothed by an unfaltering trust.' Approach thy grave like one that wraps the drapery of his couch about him and lies down to pleasant dreams. Don't let the newspapers get hold of it. Good night. 
But it was only at daybreak that Mr. Tarbox disordered the drapery of his couch to make believe he had slept there, and at sunrise he was gone to find Claude. End of Part 3, Chapter 6